On this episode of The Jukebox, we sat down with Katya Sherla, a visiting assistant professor at the Joukowsky Institute for Archaeology and the Ancient World. She is a Roman archaeologist as well as a maritime archaeologist who focuses on Roman long-distance trade and exploitation of natural resources. We talked to Katya about teaching maritime archaeology at Brown and her most exciting archaeological discovery to date. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in then I watch them roll away again, yeah I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide So can you tell me a little bit about why you became interested in the past in the first place? And how old you were and, you know, sort of chart that narrative for me? Well, it came actually from when I was 16. I had this amazing opportunity to come to the U.S. and uh, From where? From France. Okay. So I'm actually from northern France. And I, well, didn't really know what to do in terms of, um, you know, future plans, future career. And I wanted to take a year off. So I went to the U.S. and it was a really good year to have a chance to think about you know what I wanted to do with myself, and the university that I, the high school that I went to offered ancient Greek, and so I started taking ancient Greek. And my host dad happened to be um, a scuba diver and and an instructor at the same time, so he um, trained me. And as a um, little present, he decided to take me to Belize, uh, and. That's quite a quite a. I, I was lucky to strike such a good family, and while we were in Belize, um, I had a chance to go uh, diving in the Blue Hole, which was discovered by Jean-Jacques Cousteau, and we were we were staying at that at a little island, and in the evenings I would be sitting on the dock and talking with the local fishermen, and I remember. Um, them drinking a beer that had a Maya temple on it. And that sort of triggered my questions, and I sort of said, well, you know, what, what, what's the story here? What's the link? And these fishermen just started telling me, well, you have no idea how much history there's here. I mean, if, to you, this might just be a little island. To us, this is a mangrove that we know really well, and we know its history, and there is so much, you know, artifacts, temples... And I was just fascinated. I thought, wow, this is a history. These people really know their past so well. And they encouraged me to, they said, well, you know, Belize is doing an archaeological school. You should really look into this. And that's what's initially got me interested. Okay, so what about from there? Um, well, you, that's, you had this experience, and then what was the next step? Well, so, I mean, I was so interested in it that I really, I applied to the school in Belize to go do my first dig, and um, then I got accepted, and I was so excited about it. I called my parents and said, Mom, Dad, you have no idea the best thing ever has happened to me. Um, I just got accepted to go to Belize to an archaeological school. And that's when I heard a long pause on the other side of the line. And my parents saying, okay, kid, so you have just spent a year away from home 
And now you're telling us you want to go in the middle of the jungle somewhere, do something. There's just no way. You're coming straight back home, and that's it to your adventures. <laughs> and I went back home, um, and the thing that I took away from the, from the U.S. was that, A, I really liked ancient Greek. Um, I was still really passionate about, well, where we came from as a civilization, and that if I really wanted to do archaeology, surely enough, like that wasn't the end of my life, and I would probably have other opportunities. For a lot of young archaeologists, field school is like a make or break if they want to go into the field. So what are some of your best memories from field school? And also, what are some of your worst that kind of off put you from archaeology, but you kept going? I think I could, yes, have one good field story um, from uh, Berenike, which is the Roman uh, harbor on the Red Sea. And um, we were very excited as one of the trenches that we opened up, there were very strange bones that were appearing. And I just remembered everyone being really excited. Um, they'd been desperate to sort of show the luxury imports that were coming in. So everyone started having a bet. Like, what is this? Is it a monkey? So at first, everyone thought, okay, great. This is like, it's going to be a monkey. And then people were like, no, that's not a monkey. That's an iguana. Great. We have the first example of like iguana trade in the Roman world. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's going to be sent to Rome um, to where, you know, there's going to be all the, the exotic animals. And then feathers started appearing, and the feathers were a bit of a, they had a bit of a weird color. So then everyone was sort of like, yeah, yeah, that's a parrot. Hey, that's so cool. Like, yeah, it's parrots being sent to Rome. Or maybe it's the story of a pirate who is you know, walking around with his parrot. And we were having such great fun with all these different interpretations. And finally, the archaeologist came and, well, she came. She listened to us, she smiled, and then she laughed so hard. She said, that's a great chicken you've got there. <sighs> oh, my God, how disappointing. Um, well, I mean, I think the story to take away from there, that is that you always want to be working as a team. And the finer details, leave them to the person who really knows what they're doing. <laughs> I've also often been asked, what's my best discovery. It just seems to be something that fascinates people. Like, what have you really found? And I think I, I always disappoint people with my answer. Um, I've discovered villas in Rome, a second century villa that I was excavating, which is beautiful. But what really fascinated me was also in the Eastern Desert. I found 30 peppercorns. And that's what I say as an answer. I say, well, my best discovery was 30 peppercorns because I knew I had found more pepper than had ever been found in the entire Roman Mediterranean. And it's the subtleties that I'm interested in. I hope I know my archaeology, but what I want to find out is how does a tiny detail remind you of the lives of these people? What are the implications? These 30 peppercorns, they reminded me of people on Hadrian's Wall eating that pepper, organizing the supply, and all of that coming from India, the travels, the people that would have been sailing 
there, bringing it to Berenike. And it's almost as if these 30 peppercorns, to me, they were just the tip of an amazing story to unfold. And they just opened the gates to a wide history that, to me, ranged from the Indian Ocean all the way to um, the most northern Roman wall that there was. And that, to me, was why I found that so fascinating. And that's what I want to look for. I want to make sense of history, looking at the archaeological material. Um, just as the experience with my parents saying, like, no, you can't go, I'd say, like, field schools, it it's really tough out there in the field, um, and it's very different from real life. So I would say you'd need to have a couple of fieldworks experiences before you really should decide. Um, because, yeah, I mean, there, there are moments, there are great moments where... You know, there's four of you in one room and you have great fun uh, because you all get along. There are other times living and learning how to work as a team. Uh, I've worked a lot in the desert. And again, in the desert, it can be really tough if somebody uses too much water uh, for the shower. And then uh, it just turns out you can't have a shower for a week because somebody is taking too long a shower. That can be a little bit hard. But then there's so many rewarding moments. Okay, so uh, when you got to college um, or university, what did you, what did you do to, you know, seek the past? What did you do to um, keep this interest going? I still remember vividly one day, where after having spent a year in Rome and working on the preservation of cultural heritage. I had returned to Madison, Wisconsin, um, because I realized I really wanted to be more on the research side. And I was reading Livy, um, book 21, and trying to understand the crossing of the Rhone River, um, Hannibal is crossing. At that moment, I, as I would always do, I would raise my hand and I would be disturbing classes saying, well, I don't understand here you've got these elephants. They need to be cross crossing the Rhone. And the Rhone River is a it's a very difficult river to cross. I mean, what how much timber planks was needed to construct that bridge, that floating bridge, and how does it all work? And my professor at the time paused and he said, Miss Shirley, I understand. If you want a question about why we're using the dative of military accompaniment, that is one thing, and you're in the right place. But if you are trying to understand how the elephants are being put on floating barges to cross the Rhone, then I think you're at the wrong place. And I think that that was a really great comment because it made me really think about what I wanted to do with my linguistic skills and my own vision of what attracts me to ancient languages and at the same time where my heart really lies. And it made me realize that I needed to be working on the side of archaeology because ultimately I was more interested in the history and in actually the physical technical details. To me, language was, 
or Latin was one way to access details of a historical moment more than anything. And that made me decide that I needed to move from a master's in classics to a master's in archaeology. So how did you decide on a topic for your PhD dissertation? So I had excavated a bit everywhere in the Mediterranean. I'd gone from uh, Italy to um, different places in North Africa, worked in Libya and Egypt. And it was these opportunities that sort of made me think about long-distance commerce and the way that I should approach long-distance commerce. So again, it was these, in a way, these peppercorns just started making me think again about what on earth, how do these get into the Roman Empire? How do you organize long-distance trade? And one of the things that fascinated me was that if pepper comes from India, you would want to have that pepper travel as quickly as possible to go to Rome. And so I started looking at the geography of places it would stop. And to my amazement, all of these luxury goods ended up going through deserts. And that's when I thought, hold on, that makes no sense. Like, why, why are goods being transported across such vast expanses of sand? And how does it work? How, what's the organization? And I began to unravel that whole life in the desert. And I thought, well, maybe that's what I want to study in detail. I want to see what's happening in the deserts and how much does the Roman economy have an impact on areas where nowadays still nobody really lives? I mean, in the eastern desert of Egypt, nobody lives there. So what made it viable? Is it because there's been a climate change? And in the Roman period, uh, you had you know vast oases where nowadays you have nothing. Um, same in the Sahara, where I'd been working with David Mattingly. I mean, how how come you have amphorae? You've got goods from the Roman Empire that are crossing a thousand kilometers to get in the middle of what would be nowhere in the Sahara nowadays. Can we talk of a climate miracle? Or do we really want to believe in the miracle of the Roman economy? I mean, we have the Roman economy on such a high pedestal. And, you know, what's so miraculous about it? And I wanted to really investigate these questions to really see, well, is there that miracle of climate? Is it a miracle of the Romans? Or is it actually local agents? Is that our people really the agents of change? Okay, so... Um why don't we talk about the song that you picked for your episode and why you chose it? Yeah, so I picked Otis Redding's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. And again, I think it's because it goes back to my initial training at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and finding out quite after a long time that um, Otis Redding's plane had crashed in the lake um, next to Madison. And just just thinking that not only, I mean, it's a beautiful song, sitting on the dock of the bay, and there he is, like, in that lake, sitting forever at the bottom of the lake. And it, I, I was often thinking about that song when I was in Egypt, sitting on a dock, which was the dock of the Princess Duda, the oil tanker that Frank Godio was using to dive and we were just 
you know, in Egypt on that dock. And I would think about the ships that we were excavating. And at the same time, it reminded me of, you know, Otis Redding's plane and sitting on that dock. So a lot of people's only experience with archaeology is like through pop culture. So um, what book, movie, TV show has really influenced how you think about archaeology or do you think represents archaeology or its concepts in a good way or bad way? One of the books that I really like is Fahrenheit 451. Um, the book is has nothing to do with archaeology, or so it seems. Um, but it's about a futuristic society uh, where uh, firemen are being used to burn all the books that are not very accommodating to the current situation. And there is one group that resists that, and they have to go. They go into the woods. I'm sorry, guys, if I'm spoiling the storyline of that book. Um, but the gist of it is that there's a group of resistant people that go out in the woods and they memorize history. They memorize these books because they realize their importance to civilization. I mean, and that's what I really believe in, in the work that I do. And I think it's important that we're not very much without history and without archaeology. I mean, we have to preserve the roots of our civilization. And especially at times where there is a lot of destructions of sites. Um, I worked under Gaddafi in Libya. I work on Palmyra. So I see a lot of that destruction happening. And I also see that there is less of an interest in the past. People questions, well, why do we need to learn anything about the Greeks, the Romans, or any other civilization? And that book, to me, encapsulates all of that, is that if we have a society where we wipe out both the archaeological evidence and the historical knowledge, we really lose the meaning of what society is about. And that's why that book has such meaning. We have to remember that our cultural heritage is so important because without it, when we lose it, we lose so much information and not just information. We lose who we are. Um, and I would say that's why that book is important. A lot of my friends and family are always like, archaeology is so cool, but... It's too expensive, too impractical, no job market, like you were saying. What ways do you think archaeology can move to op be open to more people and more diverse from more diverse backgrounds? And um, what ways do you think that it can evolve with the times? That's a great question, and I would actually turn it the other way. I would say it's not archaeology that has got to be more open. It's people that have to be more open to archaeology simply because we do find it everywhere. It's just that people forget about how often we see it. Um, you will have anyone working in an urban environment, and we know that cities make a big part of our lives. Um, people will have to make choices about what's more important, the past or the present. And if they're informed by classes in archaeology, they will know that you don't necessarily need to make that hard choice, past or present. Both can be combined. And if you know about archaeology and you can make proper sound decisions on 
how to excavate a site, how to maintain it, but also keep the structures that we need because we need to live as, as a society nowadays. So it's not just about the past. And I think we, perhaps as archaeologists, should help people realize that archaeology is everywhere. Um, some of us are more keen on it and want to do pure research, but archaeology really is everywhere, just from buying your house and thinking about constructing your swimming pool and thinking about these questions because, yay, back then in class, you had an archaeologist tell you about the value of the past and you're now informed and you can do things about it. Um, you find archaeology a lot in the governments, you know, if, whether if you're working for the United Nations or you're in a position, say, in the military and um, you need to be making choices that are culturally informed. I think maybe that is the way forward. It's more about making people more sensitive to the fact that archaeology is everywhere in our lives and it's not pure research. So this semester you're teaching a maritime archaeology course and as I understand it, the final project isn't um, exactly traditional. Can you talk more about that? I came across the idea for... uh, their final project um, with a show that I'm that I think is really great, Damien Hurst's show. And again, it goes back to your question about uh, you know what can you do with a classical archaeological formation, and uh, you know how do how how aware are people of you know archaeology as a whole? And I think it's my best example is Damien Hurst, who is one of the utmost leading British young artists and well young he's not that young anymore but you know in our worlds when you're 40 50 you're still considered as a young artist (laughs) Um, but he just uh, put up a show in Venice which in which he reconstructs um, an entire story of a mythical shipwreck that he sort of discovered off the coast of Africa and in which it's is all the collection of a Roman art collector. And it's fascinating because he has reconstructed or he's done so many art objects that are inspired from many different cultures, but still fitted around, say, sort of the period of the Roman world. Although you still find a Mickey Mouse uh, completely eaten up by corals. So from that, I wanted the students to think about their own mythical shipwreck and make them think about very technical details that you do have to think about. And then from there, reconstruct a shipwreck using artifacts from museums. And I'm hoping that it will really make them think about technical, hardcore evidence from the class. But... I want them to be creative. I want them to think and I want them, I'm more interested in the strategies and how they build from that knowledge that they have. Are you afraid that you're encouraging them to become forgers of artifacts? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, But then what is a forgery? (laughs) 
Touche. And this loneliness won't leave me alone. Listen, two thousand miles I roam just to make this dock my home. Now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of a bay, watching the tide roll away. Ooh, sitting on the dock of a bay. 